but the title for this presentation is uh, Consciousness, Imagination, and Gratitude, the Inexhaustible Sources of the Self. We're trying to be in line with the notion of uh, uh, boundless human potential. Uh, fascinating topic. And, uh, you know, one that I can... Uh, I consider quite apposite to the <coughs> work, life, vision, way of seeing of Ibn Arabi. And uh, I'm very happy to be here. It's an honor to be here, to be with this group, uh, which is uh, an entity in the intellectual history of uh, the latter half of the 20th century. We're now in the 21st century. I keep having to remind myself, which has done more for the study of Ibn Arabi than any other, without question. I mean, it's obvious, but I'd just like to beg your indulgence for the opportunity to say that while here, inside the Kaaba, uh, which is a <laughs> spe spectacular, spectacular structure for such a meeting. Uh, it's just been uninterrupted uninterrupted pleasure from the moment we started, and now it will all change, of course, <laughs> but, but it is, uh, it is um, wonderful to be here uh, with you. I'm going to speak about Ibn Arabi uh, in a general way and in a specific way, and in the general way, uh, it is Part of my favorite theme, and it's the, the problem and topic and question which got me interested in Islamic studies to begin with, that is the heritage of Islam in the contemporary modern situation. That is to say, the gift of what Hodgson referred to as the venture of Islam to human civilization. This I find uh, the, the most compelling aspect of the study for myself. Uh, not to say that other aspects aren't extremely compelling, but this I find is an urgent question. Because as um, a race, namely the human race, we are largely, whether Muslim or non-Muslim, Western, Eastern, largely unaware of the great gift of this cultural efflorescence uh, effect it has had on our, especially Western, uh, science, knowledge, institution building, the idea of the university, public uh, hygiene, teaching hospitals. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The, the sa saving of the Greek tradition, uh, I mean, it's just endless. And I won't try and uh, present a list of these things, but uh, what, I what I want to do is share with you my excitement and enthusiasm about this historical reality and my, uh, shall we say, restiveness of fact that this remains still largely unknown. I got into Islamic studies as an undergraduate when I was studying English to <clears throat> perhaps become a lawyer. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had to take a, a course, a breadth requirement course. I was flipping through the 
the catalog, and there was a course called The Heritage of Islam. <laughs> Quite apart from not knowing anything about Islam, I had no idea of a heritage of any kind. Because I, I, I'm a North American, I'm probably much different in Europe, although maybe not a lot, but all through school we never heard the word Muhammad or Islam or Quran, not once in any class, ever. Wallahi. <laughs> the, n nothing. And so, uh, at university, I decided to look into this course, and it was uh, like um, first looking into Chapman's Homer, or, or uh, it, it was, it was, it was a, a thrill that I still live with. And, the, and then the question that followed was, why have they been keeping this such a big secret? And over the last uh, 35 years or so, I've tried to evolve uh, responses to that question, try to understand it, but more than to understand why, I'm trying to redress it on my own sort of personal mission. Well, of course, it's not just my mission. There are many people also involved in doing this. But it's, a, it's an urgent problem, it's an emergency. Because until at least Europe and Atlantic nations and North America recognize that in their cultural DNA there is a large component of Islam and Islamic culture, the, the resistance and phobia about Islam will continue. Because it is a it is a it is a, a, a matter of self denial. It's a psychological problem on a on a global scale, and uh, it is a, one of the ways in which this issue <coughs> can be addressed is by painstakingly sharing the great cultural and spiritual and intellectual achievements of the Islamic world with the broader global world, with, the, with the, the world as it is today. And this, of course, is where our uh, master, Ibn al-Arabi, enters the picture. Uh, he's not the only one, of course. He's not the only impressive spiritual genius from Islamic culture. But I think it is safe to say and it's been said by many people, that there is probably no greater spiritual genius in the history of Islam, and maybe even in the history of mysticism in general. Right? What frequently happens, as we all know, is that because it's mysticism, Ibn Arabi is oftentimes looked at as... Uh, an erratic boulder, you know, as a, as, yes, he's from a Muslim society, but, you know, that's where it begins and ends. Not really a Muslim, and this is not Islam, right? This is mysticism, okay? And therefore, we can proceed to feel very good about, again, because we, we have this wired-in phobia, a word which means fear and hate at the same time. We have this phobia about Islam. And so... Ibn Arabi, from the point of view of being a mystic, is taken to our breast 
and loved and cherished and enthused over and written about and translated. And the Islamic part is, is sometimes left to one side. Well, I'm here to tell you that, <laughs> that, that to be fair, uh, I think, uh, I sincerely believe that Ibn Arabi would, spins in his grave when this happens. Right? I believe that he was a devout Muslim and proud and importantly attached to this identity and that for him to be separated from Islam would be an act of violence. This is my, I, I, I sense this. I, I feel this. Um, we can discuss it uh, I, if there's time here. I will eventually stop talking, of course. <laughs> Wait, there's, if there's time here or in the seminar, we can, we can, I would be happy and, and welcome the opportunity to discuss this, these uh, ideas with you because that's also one of the great privileges of being here is you actually meet people who are interested in the same thing you are and have deeply held uh, existentially engaged views, not just scholarship, not just academic uh, uh, credentials, but people for whom these questions are truly important. So that uh, then it is a then something can happen, <laughs> right? Then we can make some progress together. All right. <clears throat> what time shall I stop? Okay. Bef to begin with the first category, consciousness. This will cover a certain amount of territory. <coughs> I'd like to uh, return to this issue of Ibn Arabi and Islam. For Ibn Ar everyone who's read, uh, looked at Ibn Arabi, especially in Arabic, but in good translations and editions, it's also quite clear that frequently every other word is from the Quran. Right? That this is his, this is the the pole around which he he circumambulates. It is his bride, in a sense. It is, it's part of himself. Uh, he, he himself says these things on several occasions. And, and the beautiful book by Shodkovitz, The Ocean Without Shore, is a wonderful demonstration of the, this uh, reality, this bonding. In a sense, everything, and this has also been said, but everything that he's written is kind of a commentary on the Quran or response to it. And we... Uh, then it, it behooves us to, to have some insight into what the Qur'an is in its pre-Ibn Arabi state, to have a look at it for what it is and what it says. And I just want to focus on one or two topics from the Qur'an which relate to some of the ideas that have been uh, expressed here in the past couple of days, and that is the idea of... A, 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 where's Nick beautiful paper, the idea of the meta-narrative, 
from the point of view of Ken Wilber. Well, in, in your talk, it, it, it came, it was quite clear that the Quran actually does provide a meta-narrative. Uh, you know, we speak today about human rights and human relations and, and the human heritage and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and while it's not the first place in the world where the category was mentioned, the Quran may be uh, seen as, as the place in which the idea of humanity was actually born. All right? The idea of uh, uh, humanity that is not a chosen people or a tribal people, not Arab, not Persian, but humanity. You read the Quran, uh, you know, frequent leitmotif, even more frequent than a leitmotif, is this notion of humanity, mankind. Mankind were this, and then this happened. Or humanity was this. For those men who have eyes, you know, it's, it's de-ethnicized. It's humanity in a not abstract form, but in a, in a pure phenomenological form. This is magnificent development in the, in the history of ideas and in the history of religion. And not only this, the Quran says that humanity could have been all one community. We all know the famous verse. But God decided to do things otherwise. It, it wasn't all one community. Divided people into different groups, in different colors, with different languages, different nations, different, uh, different tribes, uh, different races, for one particular reason. And, of course, the reason comes sometimes later in the book. This is one of the beauties of the Quran. It is uh, very interesting from the point of view of structure. Who knows the reason for all of these various tribes and languages and colors and races and so on? Anybody? Let's, I like a little audience participation. <laughs> yeah. Sir? Ah, thank you very much. That they might actually share. And the, this verb in Arabic is extremely important because it's of a special verbal form. In Arabic, you know, you know, it has a special form for every mood and every nuance of, in, in the verb. So this, mean, this is a verb of mutuality. Ta'arafa. Right? So... All of these different cultures exist so that each can have the experience, the mutual experience of recognition. This sounds terribly postmodern to me. You know, this, I, I mean, and it's from the 7th century. You know, it wasn't in order that some may be d distinguished as more excellent than the others or that some be seen as more dangerous than the others or some should be avoided. It's so that all could have the experience of recognizing and getting to know each other. And the verb, ta'arafa, is built on this important verb in Arabic, arafa, the one that generates the great hadith, man arafa nafsuhu, he who knows himself knows his Lord. Right? It's the same verbal idea. And, and actually, arafa doesn't mean know in the same way that other verbs mean know. It means to recognize. Right? So, who recognizes the true self also recognizes the God. And now we're getting closer uh, to the centerpiece of the uh, brief discussion of consciousness. <clears throat> uh, 
the idea of dhikr is extremely important in the Islamic tradition. <clears throat> uh, it has become somewhat monopolized, at least in the scholarly literature, by uh, Sufis. But this is not true. Muslims in general are engaged in dhikr. Uh, it, is, it is not just, just a Sufi domain. <clears throat> The word dhikr means to mention with, with uh, accent and emphasis on the ment part, the mentation idea, not the tongue idea, the, that it's brought to mind, right? And of course, you know the mind in the, mind in the Quran is the heart, right? It's, the, it's the quite common in, the, in uh, the time and place. And the heart is the, it's actually almost the center, as, as Beham was speaking the other day. The, the, the mind is here. The Greeks put the mind in the head because they were clever architects, and they knew that the head was a sphere which is the strongest architectural structure. So they wanted to protect... The, but, but prior to this, and even co co coeval with it, the heart in other cultures was here. Right? The mind and the heart are the same. Right? And there are various other regions that do other sort of acts of cognition and perception in different ways. But it is the heart in the Quran. Okay? So the, the heart, the idea of mentation, bringing to, to mind, is yes, to remember God, but to remember something very special vis-a-vis -vis God. It's not just to remember God, because what's that? God is unknowable. Isn't it wonderful? You know, you can never know God. God is beyond everything. God is unknowable. Lysa Not only is nothing like him, nothing is like like him, right, in the Quran. It's utterly remote, utterly removed. God. So, but, and so how do you remember this? How do you, rem how do you, how do you bring it to mind? You know, what's going on? This is a perfect example of the kind of uh, uh, play between oppositions and dualities and symmetries in the Quran, which makes it so powerful, the, po uh, the power of the text. Well, uh, we're given a clue, and most agree, and Bovering demonstrated this in his great book on uh, Tustari about 30 years ago, that probably... What we're thinking about here is that important moment called the Day of the Covenant in the Quran. At Surah 7, verse 172. When God enters the stage of conceptualization in a sort of mythic drama, or mythopoic drama, and on the plane of no time and no place, and takes from the loins of Adam the potential, the seeds, the potentia, of all future generations of human beings. And they are arrayed on this great plane of timelessness and placelessness, because it's before creation. And God addresses them with these words, Am I not your Lord? And they all immediately respond, Yea, verily, Bala. Right? And this is the scenario. This is the beginning of time according to Islam. Compare the beginning of time here with the beginning of time 
in other traditions. Right? Here we have the entire human race, Arab, Muslim, Republican, Democrat. <laughs> They're all here. And they all share in this experience. And it is, they are brought into reality through this divine questioning. They didn't, they didn't exist prior to the question. It's akin to the Kuntu Kanzan Hadith, right? I was a hidden treasure and I desired... It's sort of the obverse of that in a sense, right? It represents the establishment of the covenant in Islam. And the covenant... Of course, there's an important word in Abrahamic religious tradition. It's not so, it doesn't thrill people from other traditions quite so much because it is a specific word having to do with a specific mercantile culture in which covenants and agreements were made or selling and buying and so on. Muhammad continues this, uh, the Quran continues the importance of the idea of the covenant is that by this time it has a very ancient, venerable pedigree, and this is the day of the covenant. There are two words for covenant in Arabic, and uh, they're extremely important. They're at the center of Islamic thought and life, and they were at the center of Ibn Arabi's thought and life. This drama, this, this myth, myth, sacred myth, represents, of course, the notion of obedience, because it goes on in the same verse, say, the reason that we've done this is so that on the day of judgment, no one will be able to say, oh, I didn't know we were supposed to behave. <laughs> I mean, after all, it was my parents who led me into it. Are you going to blame me for my parents? <laughs> right? So that's the reason given in the Quran, right? And no one's arguing, of course, with the Quran. But what it represents in, from another point of view, from the sort of mystical and... Uh, if you like, philosophical point of view, and even from uh, maybe a literary point of view, is an Islamic myth of the birth of consciousness. But this consciousness is not undifferentiated and amorphous. It's not just a blank tabula rasa. It is a consciousness which comes into existence already with these presuppositions about humanity, and relationship to God, and the, the overlordship of God, and the servitude of humanity, and this, this relationship, which is, which is more important than anything else in creation, because it precedes creation. Right? This is why we are here. Right? So this is, this is the, the consciousness aspect of the talk that I wanted to speak about. And I, I, I think that it's... Uh, uh, something that needs to be, we need to be reminded of, uh, no pun intended, uh, because it is, it is a quintessentially Islamic idea. It doesn't exist like this in other traditions, right? This is, this is, uh, this is an Islam, this is part of the heritage of Islam. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but you have to, uh, we have to know that this is one of the gifts from the Islamic religious and cultural uh, world to, uh, to us. It's part of our, it's now part of our uh, common language. And if it's not, it should be. It should be, it should be a topic that we are all familiar with as citizens of the world.
right? So now uh, we'll look at the idea of imagination. Uh, an idea very important, as we all know, to Ibn Arabic. And <clears throat> something, uh, and his, the contribution from Ibn Arabi to the discourse of imagination in Islamic thought is unparalleled. It's quite original. There's, there's uh, I mean, there may be intimations of its uh, flowering earlier and so on, but he is really the master of this discourse of imagination. And one of the places where he speaks about it, uh, and the shall we say the place that I'm going to refer to, because he's written so much and there's so much out there, and I'm, I'm not, I don't present myself as an expert on the writings of Ibn Arabi. But I, uh, I do know some of his, uh, his works and some of his ideas, and I, as I said, I like to relate his, his, uh, his entire project to the Islamic uh, uh, the Islamic cultural uh, fact <coughs> is uh, in the Fasus, in his, uh, he speaks about it to some degree in the Fas on Isaac, but more importantly, maybe in the discussion of Joseph. And of course, when Joseph enters the picture, uh, it deserves and demands a bit of elaboration and discussion because Joseph is another, the Islamic Joseph is another sui generis gift from Islam to the world of religio, cultural, psychological, poetic discourse that has not really been taken to the bosom of, of, uh, of shall we say, comparative literature or comparative religion to the degree that it should. It's coming more and more. But the Islamic Joseph is really quite uh, remarkable and demands some special respect and attention. So I'll talk a little bit about Joseph and then uh, about the doctrine of imagination that is involved in Ibn Arabi's discussion of him in the Fasus. Again, when you bring up the question of the Fasus, the idea of meta-narrative re returns. Because uh, the Fasus is a uh, mature work of Ibn Arabi. Uh, for a long time, it was the only thing that was read. Uh, uh, but, uh, and some people decried this. But, uh, you know, if it were the only thing that we had from him, it wouldn't be the end of the world, shall we say. It is a magnificent, uh, mature composition uh, that, uh, that seems to say most, if not everything, what he wanted to say to us, even if we cannot, even if the details are sometimes hard to perceive. It's uh, uh, tremendous. And I, I know you, it's like preaching to the choir or carrying coals to Newcastle or something here, but I, I indulge me for a minute because I would like to just tell you uh, about my enthusiasm about just the title for this book. 
the Fasus al Hikam. We all know that it's, a, it's an image about a ring and a ring stone. Right? The Fas is the setting of the gemstone. Right? And the gemstone is the uh, uh, different gem, different color. The different treatments in the various chapters represent the different colors of a, a gem. They correspond to this idea. But the fas is also important, right? Because the fas is the actual prophetic self to which the light of this wisdom occurs. So you have the gem, which is the knowledge or the wisdom, and its variegated nature, its differentiation from another wisdom, another. And then you have the fas, which, if we refer to gemology at the time that Ibn Arabi was and the making of rings and jewelry and so on, which wasn't quite as, uh, it was much different than the way we, you know, it wasn't quite as possible to fashion a jewel the way we can today. We can't cut, so the fast had to be fitted to the jewel. So this is the, this is the part of the metaphor that I'd like to stress, is that the importance of, of, the, of the defining metaphor in this title is that each prophet is a distinct individual and is shaped by the wisdom that comes to it, right? Uh, uh, it's terribly important. That is, his, uh, who he was. And then we get into notions of context and history and society and language and all of these things. In addition to the Quranic invention of humanity... You, we also want to bear in mind that the Islamic tradition recognizes many more prophets than the 27 or 26 uh, or however many there are mentioned in the Quran. The number is, sir, how many? Thank you very much. 124,000 uh, prophets. We don't know them all. But why, 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 why does this make sense? They weren't all from Babylon. You know, the Quran says that there is no community on the face of the earth that, has, that lives now or that has ever lived that has not had the benefit of divine revelation through a prophetic messenger. This, turn, this wipes away the whole possibility of anything of approaching a chosen people. I mean, there are Muslim missionaries. There is a da'wah. There, there is a call. There is a mission. And there is preaching and sometimes proselytization. But according to the Quran, it's not possible to see any other person on the face of the earth as less than you are. There may be the unregenerate, as spoken of in various aspects. And sometimes in, sometimes in highly polemical situations. And I would caution us to make sure that when we find these uh, intense uh, uh, statements about uh, non-human and human. Look for the polemical, look for the politics of the polemics involved, what's going on, because it's quite, it is quite common. But in general, the Quranic position is that there is no people on the face of the earth that has been without divine guidance. They may have forgotten it. They may, they may have killed their prophet. Frequently they do these things, according to the Quran. They disobey. <clears throat> and, of course, the degree to which the prophets are followed or, or, or not followed 
in the Quran is, is uh, a, one of the elements in the development of civilization. Civilizations that flourish represent a people that, to a greater or lesser degree, obeyed and recognized the prophet that was sent. Civilizations that did not flourish represent the opposite. A people to whom a prophet came and was utterly rejected by the majority. So this is the Quranic equation. And by this, another element of the Quranic heritage is brought forth, that is namely, in the Quran, civilization itself is raised to the level of religious value. And you see, we, don't, we don't hear this from anybody, and we don't, we don't get it. Uh, uh, but it is absolutely essential to recognize that the whole struggle, and uh, for the seminar, I'm sharing with you an article. No, it's not that one, sorry. The whole struggle on, uh, in Islam may be compared uh, as an epic battle from or epic journey from ignorance, jahal, to its opposite, which in the Quran, jahal is what? Ignorance? Right. The opposite of jahal in the Quran is Islam. Islam. We have the jahali period, and we have the Islamic period. Right? So, whereas technically, from the point of view of, of the dictionary, jahal would be expected to, be, the opposite would expect to be knowledge, or elm. In reality, in the Quranic and Islamic synthesis, the opposite of jahal is Islam, which automatically, therefore, means civilization and enlightenment. Right? So this is another aspect of Islamic consciousness. Right? So the, these prophets are all purveyors of civilization. Part of their struggle, part of their, their, their mission was through this divine wisdom, action was to be instituted, civilizational action, in which people were taught to live more justly, more harmoniously, more perfectly, fulfilling more perfectly their human potential. This is the case for all of them. But you will also notice in the Fasus that Whenever possible, and whenever apposite, Ibn Arabi points out that no matter how brilliant or great the particular prophet was, Muhammad is more accomplished. Right? And this is an important part of his mission because he wishes to show that Muhammad encompasses all of the wisdoms of the previous prophets. It is not, it's not from the other, it's not to denigrate the previous prophet, but it's to demonstrate the great faith and certitude he has about the Quranic revelation. You may agree with it, you may not agree with it, but this is who Ibn Arabi at least wishes to be seen as in the Fasus. Ultimately, those prophets represent for me as a sacred alphabet of culture and civilization. Notice there are almost as many as there are letters in the alphabet. 
in the Fasus. They had almost, you know, except for, you know, maybe, I don't know, what are they, the 26 or 27? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, the 28, you know, the last one being who. So it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be seemly to have someone representing who, which is the unknowable huwa, right? God. Wa is the symbol. But the, if we think of these prophets as, as the sort of functioning alphabet of spiritual civilization, I think we come close to what Ibn Arabi wishes to tell us. And I think that if he were living today and talking with Ken Wilber, he would say, well, you don't have to go very far for a meta-narrative. We have an example here in the, in, in, in the Quran and in my own work on the Quran, right? So I'm happy to share it with you, right? <laughs> so, <coughs> right. so what about Joseph? Uh, let us see. We've, oh dear. Well, let, us, let me take care of the last part now because that's the shortest part. And uh, the idea of gratitude is not the least important part, but it's the briefest part. Um, in these polemical situations that exist in all human societies, these contests for who's right and who's wrong, um, I think Ibn Arabi has a position, even though he does seem to take a position from time to time, but I think he wants us to <coughs> meditate on the question of what is so important about being right. Yeah, it's not that it sh shouldn't be important, but you should know what, what is important about being right. And therefore, what is, what is uh, you know, uh, undesirable about being wrong. It's a critique of this kind of uh, position. Because prior, uh, I mean, this is more Wilburian perhaps than Ibn Arabian, but prior to, say, the contemporary world, the post uh, post-industrial, post-enlightenment world, uh, and unfortunately the traces of this still are with us, you know, in order to be right, someone has to be wrong. This was the only way of conceptualizing it. Right? This is where the ideas probably emerged. But we now know that this is unsatisfactory. Even if we don't know how to logically elaborate an alternative view, we know from our experience, and this is one of the features of postmodernism that maybe is not so gloomy, but we now know that there are so many different views in the world, it's fallacious, <laughs> ipso facto, to, to base being right on the postulate that others have to be wrong. We know this now. I think Ibn Arabi's work is, uh, points in this direction, if it, if it doesn't say so explicitly. In any case, the idea of gratitude is taken from the opposite notion, uh, ingratitude, which is one of the translations for this word you hear frequently, a Quranic word, kuf, or kafir. The word kuf means in its first instance to be ungrateful. To be ungrateful, and in this instance, for the message which is coming from God. It does mean other things, but in its first instance, according to the etymologists of the Islamic tradition, it means ingratitude, to cover up your, oh, in scholar, to cover up your source, to hide who you're stealing from in your publications. This is kuf, to, to be so small-souled that you're unable to say thank you for this idea. This is kuf, to say 
thank you for this is a gift. As, as I said, when uh, I was at the first Ibn Army meeting in, in California last, Nick was there, so I'm sorry to bore you with some of the same stuff. I'm a great fan of the terrific book by Lewis Hyde called The Gift, in which he goes through the notion of, not from an anthropological way, but from sort of a, a spiritual poetic way, at the conclusion of his wonderful discussion, which has a lot to do with Ezra, poetry of Ezra Pound, as it happens, which is a great way to reread Ezra Pound, is that the greatest gift is, in fact, gratitude. The feeling of gratitude is, is, is a wonderful bounty, right? So I think that this has great uh, relevance to the notion of kafir and Muslim. Yes, a Muslim is one who has submitted to the law, uh, ha, uh, but also a Muslim is one who demonstrates their gratitude for the law, and the kafir is one who is not grateful. So this, is, this was just, uh, I wanted to add this to the other two things because I think this sets the tone of, it, of, of, of what uh, I wanted to share with you in the, under the other two categories. And all three of these things are, I see, as sources of the self, or what is frequently talked about in religious studies literature, the constituents of the formation of a soul in a, in a particular tradition. This is, a, this is a, a glimpse into how the soul is formed. If you like, the Islamicate soul, right? Or the Muslim soul, but that gets a little too intimate. I would, I, I, would, I would not dare to speak about the Muslim soul. But the notion of soul is built upon consciousness, imagination, sometimes ignored, sometimes ignored, but it's a sacred obligation, and gratitude. And the idea of them being sources of the self is uh, stealing from the title of the great monumental book by the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, The Sources of the Self in the Modern Period, which he tries to understand the sources of the Western or European self, what they are. Religion, of course, has a great deal to do with it, polit political institutions and all the rest of it. But in the, in the Islamicate abstract, these are sources of the self. And uh, they shed light on, I think, the the writings of Ibn Arabi. So who is Joseph? A singular self in the Islamic tradition, an exemplary uh, prophet for the way he uh, addressed the various challenges that, that he met in his life, and very serious ones. Um, but what is important here, Ibn Arabi, in the Fasus, it's, it's wonderful. He, he, you know, the, the chapter is 111 surahs, the verses long, and it's it's one of the most dramatic, operatic uh, surahs in the Quran. So much is going on; it's very exciting. Everybody loves it just for the story aspect. So much do they love it for the story aspect that the early uh, Kharijites said this can't be part of the Quran. It's Ah, you know, first of all, it's, too, it's the only coherent surah. In the, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And they didn't, this can't be Quranic, they said. So they, they suggested that it, that it was, that it was uh, uh, tarif. You know? and it, uh, uh, but it is in the Quran. 
and it's a magnificent story, and we don't have time to relate the whole thing here. I will talk about one or two episodes that are essential. But Ibn Arabi, in a masterful gesture of concision and, uh, and uh, 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 authority, just quotes one or two verses, the f virtually the first one and the last one. Because what he wants to say is connected with this. It's not really the first one, it's the second or third, but it's the last. It's the beginning and the end, shall we say. It be begins with a recount of Joseph's dream, seeing the, 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 the 12 stars bowing down to him. Right? And Ibn Arabi, in, in the space of a small paragraph, infers the entire story by saying, and at the end we have this verse, what he wants to tell us is that the dream, the vision, which is a product of the imagination, through history, through the story of Joseph, and through his epic struggle, through his role as the expeditionary soul, I loved that yesterday, the brought about, through the grace of God, the actual reality of his dream. The dream showed him being his brothers and his father and his stepmother bowing down to him. And the story, of course, is all about how the brothers wanted anything but that to happen. They were already terribly annoyed by Joseph. He was beautiful. His father loved him, giving this very fancy, expensive coat with all the colors. You know, to have a coat with a lot of colors in those days meant serious investment, Right? It was not just, uh, here, have my shirt, you know. It was a serious distinction for Joseph to be given this magnificent coat, which is referred to elusively in the Quran as the kamis, the shirt, right? But it is phenomenologically the same thing. You know, so they, they took him out and, you know, did away with him, dropped him down a well, and then finally sold him into slavery. And then he went to Egypt and had the run-in with uh, Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, and his great resistance to her, but even though he was innocent, he was jailed anyway. And this is not unfamiliar, right? Well, uh, yeah, he was a Hebrew slave. What else do you do with an uppity Hebrew slave? Throw him in jail. You know, they can't be innocent, no matter if they didn't do the crime. They're, they are ontologically guilty, right? This is a Hebrew slave. Put him in jail. Right. The nerve of him inciting the lust of Potiphar's otherwise stainless wife. We get rid of this man. So he languished in prison for all those years. And it was in prison again that his powers of imagination were discovered and brought to the attention of the king for whom he interpreted the king's dreams. And as a result of his great ability to do this. He was released from prison after a long ordeal uh, and uh, given this high position in the land. So his dream is coming true. But it doesn't come altogether true until, lo and behold, on the horizon we see these brothers coming to town because Canaan is in a, is in a terrible drought, terrible famine. And they've come, Jacob sent them down to Egypt to borrow some wheat, to get some wheat. And so they come and they're taken to Joseph and uh, they don't recognize him, right? Uh, not immediately. 
And so they are in the ironic, uh, dramatically ironic position of begging from the one they despised and, in fact, would have killed if it hadn't been for one of them who saved his life. Right? They, they were uh, out of jealousy and uh, hatred and sibling rivalry to a high degree. Well, we're running out of time, right? Five minutes, okay. So. Mm. Well, most of us know the story. I, I want to concentrate on one aspect of it, which has to do with, again, the shirt. If you read the surah and track the appearances of the shirt, which occurs in various context throughout the surah, it provides also another way of tracking the narrative unity of, of the surah, and it's, and it's very revealing about what the Qur'an is saying here. But in the, the, the ultimate appearance of the shirt, we have uh, the situation which Jacob, the father of Joseph, and the father of Benjamin, Jacob and Benjamin were two full brothers, and so Jacob's love for them was more or less equal, though Joseph was the older one. Jacob has, by this time, from weeping for the loss of these two sons, uh, the feared loss of Benjamin, with such, with such uh, strength and power that his tears have washed the sight from his eyes. Right. That's how the Quran, you know. <laughs> And he's languishing on his uh, bed back in Canaan land. And his, all of his sons, all of his progeny, and he's a prophet, remember, he's a patriarch. All of his sons are now gone. They're down there in Egypt, which of course means bad place. That's a code word for bad place in the Bible. <laughs> uh, Egypt land, right? They're all down there, and God knows what's going to So he's languishing there. And it's, it's very cinematic. J Jacob, after forgiving his brothers, he was the most powerful man in, in Egypt, he could have had them ground up into hamburger if he wanted to. And nobody would have blamed him for what they... And this is a, a, a very important lesson about Islamic uh, prophetology and prophethood. As Joseph is seen here in this light in such glowing terms. He forgives them, not without first having a little fun with them, and letting him know that he knows, that they know, et cetera, et cetera. But he says, go back, go back to Canaan and bring the rest of the family here and we'll all live here. But he's learned about the blindness of his father and he says, oh, take this shirt and when you're back, in, back home, put it on my father's eyes so... He can get his sight back. All right, so they take the shirt, they load up the camels, and the Quran says, as soon as they cross the border of Egypt into Canaan, Jacob raises up in bed and says, I detect the scent of Joseph. Even though these people here think I'm crazy, the Quran says. It's magnificent. And this is the, uh, the powerful notion of the the spiritual value of aroma, the metaphorical nature of aroma. Aroma is extremely important because it simultaneously represents presence and absence. Right? And so it's a beautiful spiritual metaphor. 
does this, and, and, and also aroma goes straight to the brain. It's the, it's the only sensory stimulant that does that. Everything else is mediated. It goes straight, straight to the brain without the nervous system. They go back to uh, Canaan. They take the shirt. The messenger of good news, the Bashir, goes, Yanni Bashara, goes into uh, the uh, home of Jacob and lays the shirt on him. His sight is given back to him. He can see the entire family goes down to Egypt to live more or less happily ever after until Moses' time. And then the Quran ends by Joseph saying, this is the fulfillment of my dream, my original dream. So this is, a, this is kind of an epic of the imagination. And Ibn Arabi says that, you know, the entire experience is imagination in this surah of Joseph, and that we are, we are involved in a cosmos which is imagination, yet we are also given our own autonomous powers of imagination. It's sort of a, a large imagination and a small... And these two things interact. Said nowhere more better than in the uh, opening of uh, of Adam, where this one phrase is just, I think, encapsulates so much of what Ibn Arabi wants to say when he says that God describes himself and the world to us through us. It's extremely important, right? And it's, it's not encountered in that way elsewhere. That we are part of the medium, part of the message, we are, we are part of the description, part of the describer, and it's this meshing of, uh, of the imaginal. But we are still charged with our own autonomy, our own responsibility, which is symbolized by the law and the sharia and uh, all of these things, to, uh, and our own effort, our himma, to, to continue to fight against the lower nafs and and, and uh, to try and, and bring out what is best in us so that the imagination can ultimately serve as a light. Like the light which is the essence of God which we heard about so beautifully in the presentation. God is the light of the heavens and the earth. The imagination from the fas of, of Joseph by Ibn Arabi, it seems to me that Ibn Arabi wishes to tell us that this is an auxiliary light. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm not over. <laughs>